Hashima Island stands alone like a ghost ship in the night. What once was one of the most heavily populated small cities in the world is now a ghost town. The people have gone, but they left traces of themselves. They left the signs hanging in the stores, the tea kettles on the kitchen tables, and curtains that sway in the wind. But there are others who are still there, who will always be there. Those are the hidden, the forgotten, the tortured souls of those who will never leave. Welcome to Destination Terror, your passport to the scariest places in the world. From haunted hotels to locations of unexplained creature sightings, we will travel to places that will provide excitement, adventure, and horror. Today we are discussing Hashima Island, known more famously as the Battleship Island of Japan, a place with a dark and mysterious history. So if you're into travel and all things scary, listen close and you might just discover your next exciting adventure destination. But hopefully, not your final destination. Destination Terror is an EerieCast original podcast hosted by me, Carmen Carrion. If you'd like to send us a suggestion or submit a story with your own experience, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Carmen Carrion. If you enjoy the show, please follow and rate Destination Terror on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to help us grow. Also, check out EerieCast.com for more scary podcasts, such as Tales from the Break Room, featuring allegedly true and terrifying stories that happened on the job. I have been alone for over 50 years. No one knows the true misery of being lonely until you watch people come and go, but you can't speak to them and they can't hear you. True loneliness is being surrounded by people, but no one can see you. Well, I'm not completely alone. There are others here, but they're angry. These others are like me, trapped on the island, but they scare me. I was four years old in 1965 when my parents brought me to Battleship Island. My father needed work, and he was hired on in the mines. We shared a small apartment on the ninth floor of the highest standing building on the island with two other families. There were seven kids and six adults. There was such little room that me and my sister had to sleep on the pantry floor. I didn't mind. We had always been poor, and as such a young boy, I didn't know any better. I was happy to be around other kids, to have someone to play with. Things seemed to go well for several years. There was always food on the table, and as I got older, I was allowed to leave the building with my friends to explore. It went unnoticed by me how much my father suffered working in the mines. I remember a strange conversation between him and my mother one evening as she was bandaging his head from an injury made by a falling rock. 
He told her that he was lucky. At least he was treated human, unlike the Koreans. I didn't hear everything that he told her, but I heard enough to know that the Koreans were shipped in not knowing they would be forced to work in the mines. He said many were just young boys my age. In January of 1974, when I was 13 years old, we were on the verge of becoming homeless again. The need for coal had decreased so drastically that Mitsubishi, the company that owned the mines and the island, shut down the mines. My father was once again unemployed. I never heard what happened to the people who were forced to work in the mines. I assumed that they were set free when the mines closed. We were scheduled to leave on the last boat in March. I was heartbroken. Hashima was the only home I ever knew. So I made plans with my friends to meet at our secret hangout. It was one of the abandoned utility buildings on the other side of the island. We had wanted to explore many places on the island that were off limits, and this was our last chance to do so. There were four of us all together, but for some reason, their names are unclear to me now. I know that I'd known each of them for a long time. Come to think of it, I can't remember my little sister's name anymore either. Only mine, Takeshi. We met early, the morning before we were supposed to leave, and snuck down to the mines. It was barely daylight by the time we made it there. The entrances were boarded off in most places, but we found a way in through one entry that had an opening large enough for each of us to crawl through. I lit my lantern and crawled in first. Once I was in there was plenty of room to stand. My friends followed one by one until we were each standing in the entrance to the mine. Walking down the dark passage, we found lanterns hanging on the walls and lit them. Bathing the tunnels in light gave way to a world we had never seen before, the world our fathers had lived in on a daily basis. There were tools and busted wooden boxes laying about along with old mining carts here and there. We walked through the maze of tunnels, taking in the curiosities that we found, never once thinking about safety. My memory gets a little foggy until we reach a large wooden door that was locked. There was more than one bolt securing the door and a sign that said, Authorized Workers Only. Being teenagers, our curiosity got the best of us, and we searched until we found a bar strong enough to pry the locks open. Once inside the passageway, everything looked much the same. Another long, dark tunnel with mining equipment. But then we heard a noise. The clanging of pickaxes against rock started faintly in the distance at first, then grew louder, so loud that it felt like we were surrounded by it. I covered my ears, but the sound was so loud it felt like it was plunging through my body making my insides vibrate. I began to feel nauseous and suddenly 
began to gag. I was bent over retching my guts out when an orange light lit up the far end of the tunnel. I looked up at the light, confused and scared, thinking we'd been caught, and I looked back to my friends. I saw them as they scrambled out the door we had broken through. They had left me. I looked back to the light. It was filling the tunnel like a burning fire as it approached. I could hear screams joining the hacking sound of axes. It was the screams of men in agony and men enraged. Terrified, I turned to run, but the ceiling above me began to crumble, bit by bit at first, but quickly it started to come down in huge chunks. Each piece nearly missing me, but falling all around me, until I felt an instant pain in my head and was immediately consumed by darkness. That's my last memory of being alive. It didn't take me long to realize that I was dead and trapped here alone on this island until she came. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. A small, uninhabited island called Hashima Island is located just off the coast of Japan, around nine and a half miles from Nagasaki. A concrete island with tumble-down houses and not a single tree or plant around. Hashima is the gloomiest place on earth you will ever see. Due to its shape, the island is known as Battleship Island and has been uninhabited for some time. Abandoned does not, however, imply uninhabited because the island and its structures have been overtaken by the spirits of the past. The island's first coal deposits were found there around 1810, and it was constantly populated as a seabed coal mining facility from 1887 until 1974. Hashima produced about 150,000 tons of coal each year, and in 1916 its population was 3,000. Mitsubishi Goshikesha bought the island in 1890 
and began extracting coal from undersea mines, while seawalls and land reclamation, which tripled the size of the island, were constructed. To accommodate its expanding workforce, the business constructed Japan's first major reinforced concrete buildings in 1916, a seven-floor miners' residential tower. To specifically guard against typhoon damage, concrete was employed. Mitsubishi constructed a concrete residential complex at the time to make up for the lack of available dwelling space. It was Japan's first significant concrete structure. Workers and their families were given modest but private rooms in a six-story building constructed in the southern section of the island. Each of them had a tatami and a 106-square-foot room. The kitchen, bathroom, and restroom were all in common areas. Two years later, an even bigger residential complex was built in the center of the island. It was the biggest in Japan and had nine stories from the ocean side and three from the rock side, and it was only the beginning. A total of 30 concrete houses were soon built on the island. By 1941, the yearly production of coal in Hashima reached 410,000 tons, and it kept growing. In 1959, the population of Hashima was over 5,200. Other structures were built over the following 55 years, including apartment complexes, a town hall, a hospital, a school, a kindergarten, and a community center. For the miners and their families' amusement, a clubhouse, movie theater, shared bathroom, swimming pool, rooftop gardens, stores, and a pachinko parlor were constructed. Conscripted Korean civilians and Chinese prisoners of war were subjected to extremely severe working conditions and cruel treatment at the Mitsubishi factory starting in the 1930s and continuing until the end of World War II as a result of Japanese wartime mobilization measures. Many of those forced laborers perished on the island during this time owing to different hazards, such as underground accidents, weariness, and hunger. One estimate puts the death toll at 137. Another puts it at nearly 1,300. With a population density of 835 people per hectare for the entire island and 1,391 per hectare for the residential zone, the 6.3 hectare, or 16-acre island's population peaked in 1959 at 5,259 people. When petroleum began to replace coal, the coal reserves began to run out. People began to leave to build new lives elsewhere. Hashima Island was forgotten for almost three decades after that. The decayed island, however, drew visitors interested in the unaltered historic ruins as the concrete walls left behind crumbled and the vegetation grew. The history of Hashima Island, however, is more complicated to say the least. It's shrouded in mystery because many of the facts were deliberately unrecorded or erased. The figures indicate that Hashima Island had the highest density of population ever recorded anywhere in the world. A primary school a secondary school, a playground, a gym, a movie theater, bars, restaurants, 25 different shops, and a Buddhist temple were crammed in amongst residential homes. 
along with the other things that we mentioned earlier. Since it would take less than 10 minutes to walk from one end of the island to the other, there were no motorized vehicles on the island. Citizens of Hashima didn't need umbrellas because a network of winding staircases and hallways connected every home and acted as a transportation system. Workers received free housing, electricity, and water, but all residents were required to help with community cleanup projects. The local economy, including food, clothing, and other goods, was entirely dependent on the outside world. Before the pipes installed on the ocean floor linked Hashima with the reservoir on the mainland in 1957, fresh water had to be transported to the island. Living on Hashima was a danger during any storm that prevented sailing for longer than one day. The complete lack of vegetation on the island was its most notable characteristic. Hashima was just coal ash piled up around a bare rock. Residents of Hashima hauled dirt from the mainland and created gardens on the roofs as part of a green campaign in 1963. The island began to appear a little livelier as they began to produce flowers and veggies there. It didn't last long, though. The Japanese economy took off at the end of the 1960s, and coal was acknowledged as an environmentally unclean fuel. Oil or petroleum soon replaced coal as a basis of national energy programs. The government started shutting down coal mines around the country, and Hashima wasn't an exception. The coal mining on the island had always been difficult there. Because of the harsh climate, storms, earthquakes, and tsunamis are common there. And they had to keep restoring fortification walls continually. It took extra money and forces and posed a risk for people living on the island. Hashima frequently saw 30-foot-high waves that turned its streets into raging torrents. Mitsubishi downsized its workforce at Hashima, retrained its employees, and transferred them to other businesses. About 2,000 people were still living on the island in 1974. And on January 15th of that year, the company formally announced the mine's closure. All of the Hashima population left the island permanently in under three months. For the 84 years of its history, Hashima produced around 16.5 million tons of coal. Hashima has been abandoned, but not forgotten. The history of the island takes a darker turn during World War II when Chinese and Korean prisoners of war were put into forced labor as a part of Japanese wartime mobilization efforts. Around 1,000 people are thought to have perished on the island between the 1930s and the end of the war as a result of unsafe working conditions, starvation, and weariness. They were forced to labor under difficult conditions. The Japanese government began forcefully recruiting labor abroad during World War II to make up for the absence of domestic labor resources. Over 60,000 Koreans and tens of thousands of Chinese were reportedly forced into labor in the Hashima Islands coal mines, along with six other similar locations. According to data made public by the governments of the Republic of Korea and Mitsubishi, 722 Chinese employees and 1,442 Koreans were killed by torture on the island. 
The survivors' testimonies described what it could have been like to live under horrific conditions. 1,000 meters below sea level, where the oppressive heat and humidity made it tough to continue working, workers were required to put in at least 12 hours a day. Little water, bad food, and only an undergarment to wear while working were provided for the workers. Any failure to comply would result in a violent beating or possibly death. In contrast, the Japanese were living their colorful and respectable lives above sea level, while mingling, dancing, and sightseeing, as if the workers were slaves from another planet. The current state of the island is due to climate influence. It wasn't deliberately destroyed, but all the buildings look as if they suffered a military attack. For many years, visits to the island were forbidden and punished with a deportation from Japan. This was to prevent thieves from coming to the island in search of things they could sell. Objects from a ghost town were in great demand among rich collectors. The island was rediscovered again in the 21st century and gained an insane popularity, especially among people who were interested in ruins. The island started attracting tourists from the west and in August 2005, it was officially reopened for journalist visits. In September 2008, Hashima, also known as Battleship Island, was included in the list to get the status of UNESCO World Heritage as a monument to that period of Japanese history. Nagasaki Prefecture planned to make a kind of park or a museum of the island, renovate the decaying buildings and open it for tourists but the project was too costly and it never happened. Since April 2009, there are regular steamer cruisers to the island and around it from Nagasaki. Tourists can visit Hashima, but access is open only to the part of the island which is specifically equipped for visitors and considered safe. Any attempts to search the island alone, away from the tourist routes, is dangerous. The island is a popular tourist destination and may be visited by large groups of people. Nonetheless, the island's legacy is still a mystery despite the public's adoration. It's debatable whether the island should serve as a symbol of the slave laborers who endured horrendous conditions or as a remembrance of their role in Japan's Industrial Revolution. Even though tourists are allowed to visit the island today, the echoes of the past still linger there especially in the minds of the relatives of the forced laborers that were forced to work there and inside the crumbling buildings. Fishermen who sail near the island claim they have seen strange flickering lights in the buildings, even though the island has no electricity. Strange noises have been heard and cold spots have been felt. People say they had the sensation of being watched and there are some claims of people that have been touched by unseen hands. The abandoned concrete buildings on gloomy Hashima Island, 15 kilometers from Nagasaki in Japan. The abandoned concrete buildings on gloomy Hashima Island, 15 kilometers from Nagasaki in Japan, have appeared in several movies over the years, most notably in Hashima Project, Skyfall, and Attack on Titan. A 2017 Korean movie called The Battleship Island tells the story of Korean forced laborers taken captive on Japan's Hashima Island during Japanese colonial rule of the Korean Peninsula. 
A must-see for history buffs. Hashima Island's increase in popularity and status as a World Heritage Site, though has not been without controversy. The history of forced labor during World War II, with terrible working conditions, and an unsafe environment led to untold suffering, along with as many as 1,000 unrecorded deaths. Tour companies are often reluctant to talk about this, leading to suggestions that those in power are attempting to obscure the island's history. Thanks to a total ban on visitors, Hashima Island was left to be reclaimed by what little nature remained, and remained practically untouched for decades. The eerie atmosphere of an industrial town where people seemingly disappeared eventually caught the public eye. Slowly but surely, brave individuals started returning to the island, exploring and taking photos. However, the crumbling ruins, not to mention abandoned mines, meant that unregulated visits were an accident waiting to happen. Perhaps to combat this danger, official guided tours were eventually introduced. Debbie just wanted to get a story. You know that feeling when you're doing research on a subject and you feel like you're putting together a puzzle and suddenly you realize there are pieces missing? That's how she felt. She had to find those pieces or it would drive her crazy. Living in Nagasaki was not how she had seen her future. She'd only come here to find those missing pieces. Her last two books had almost made it onto the New York Times bestseller list, and she knew that if she kept trying, she would get there. How many people could achieve that level of success before their 21st birthday and without going to college? When she started her research on Hashima, aka Battleship Island, for her book, she was intrigued, but it wasn't the angle she had hoped for. It seemed like some sort of utopian paradise in the beginning, but it wasn't long before she came across the darker past of the island. She read about the forced labor and how the government had little to no record of the people who were forced to work there. She was literally on the verge of giving up when she woke up one morning and thought, what did they do with all the bodies? It wasn't a lead or anything, and truthfully, they had probably cremated them, but it was worth looking into. It was just a feeling, and ever since her first visit to the island, she felt like something kept drawing her back. But she needed more time, and she needed to find a way to explore more of the island. The guided tour only took you through a small area, and the rest was off limits. It was time to hatch a plan. Two days later, with her plan not so firmly laid out, she boarded the boat from Nagasaki to Hashima Island. There were almost 30 other people on board for the tour, so she hoped that would make it easy for her to slip away. This not being her first trip across the harbor to the island, she knew what to expect. The waters were always rough, but some days were worse than others. She had gotten sick more than once and had to make use of the provided vomit bag. Being a frequent visitor and fairly fluent in Japanese, she had become a favorite of the regular tour guide. It took some smooth talking, begging, and 15 yen to convince him to miscount during the headcount at the end of the day and on the return trip later that evening. Once they were there, 
she waited patiently for her chance to slip away, and no one was the wiser since they weren't paying her any attention anyway. She ducked through a door and hid until the tour was over and the boat had left. It was an eerie feeling being alone on this deserted island, with the skeleton of a city looming all around her. She had to shake off a chill even though the day was hot and humid. Making her way through the hollowed-out buildings, she saw the remnants of the past lives of the people who once lived there. Even though she was told that the buildings were unsafe, they looked fairly stable. She took pictures of several of the rooms, but tried not to get too distracted. Her destination was the mines. As she made her way through the long hallways that connected the buildings, she couldn't help but feel like she was being watched. That was probably normal, considering she was in a virtual ghost town. Debbie jumped when a mouse skittered across the hallway in front of her. She hadn't expected to be so jumpy. She wasn't the type to be easily scared. The corridor was long, but thank God the island was small. It took her less than ten minutes to get to the utility mining side of the island. She walked first into the offices where business was handled and then out into an old warehouse of sorts. This must have been where the coal was processed. She didn't understand most of what she was seeing or how it worked. Getting information on the coal mining process from that many years ago was near impossible, and no one wanted to talk about the Mitsubishi mines on Battle Island. A breeze swept through the building just then, causing debris and dust to move about on the floor along with the creaking sounds of metal. She heard the sound of hinges whining, and she swung around to make sure she was still alone. The wind had caught a door, and just as she saw it, she also saw a boy, looking through one of the office windows right at her. Hey! she yelled. What are you doing here? She felt kinda stupid, considering she wasn't supposed to be there either. The boy took off as soon as he realized he was spotted. She decided to let it go. It wasn't her problem, and he didn't look like a baby, probably in his teens. Debbie decided to move on before she let herself get any more spooked. She found a door at the far end of the building that led outside to a yard full of construction equipment. After a short walk weaving through the machines, she found herself at the opening to one of the mines. She had to quickly brush aside a case of nerves as she looked at the boarded up but rotted entryway to the mine. It was dark, and from here it would only get darker. Thank God she brought a light. She pulled a hat out of the bag she had been carrying over her shoulder. The hat had a headlamp attached to it. She put it on her head and flipped it on then dug through the bag for a regular flashlight just as backup. The headlamp was more than enough for her to see down the dark tunnel. She wasn't sure what she was looking for, but she would never find anything if she didn't try. She walked through the musty tunnel carefully, watching her step. There were so many things left in the tunnel. Dirty face covers, rusty tools with rotted handles, anything you could imagine. She saw an old wooden box and bent to open it. The lid was so decayed that it fell off when she moved it. 
Inside was what looked like several sticks of dynamite. Well, that has to be dangerous, she thought out loud. She pulled her hand gently away from the box, not wanting to disturb it any more than she already had. She stood and began walking the long dark path again when her light caught the figure of a boy in the distance. It was the same boy from earlier. He beckoned for her to follow him. Now normally, she would be having serious doubts, but for some reason, she got the strange feeling that he was what she had been looking for. So she followed him. He went down the tunnel without the use of a light, and when the tunnel forked, he turned to the left. They were going deeper beneath the surface of the island, probably beneath sea level by now. He stopped when he reached an opening that had once been a door and beckoned to her again. She drew closer and followed him through the door, where she found a room partially caved in. She was only a few feet from the boy now, and she could see that he was barefoot, and his clothing seemed really old and dirty. She was about to ask him how long he had been here, when he patted his chest and then pointed at something on the ground. Debbie looked down, and beneath several large rocks was a skeleton. She hadn't expected that. Her heart skipped a beat, and she looked at the boy again, and again he repeated the motion. He patted his chest and pointed at the skeleton. Is that someone you know? She asked sadly. He shook his head and patted his chest again. Can't you talk? she asked. She could see the overwhelming sadness in his eyes as he tried to answer, but no words would come out. He finally stepped towards her and held out his hand. Debbie looked at it for a second before reaching out. She gasped when her hand went right through his. It suddenly began to make sense, and as she looked at him again, he nodded, patted his chest, and pointed at the skeleton. That is you? She said, half question, half statement. The boy nodded and began making so many different motions that she got lost for a minute. Wait, slow down, you're confusing me. Slowly the boy nodded, then squatted down and pointed to what looked like an old potato sack on the ground and then pointed back to the skeleton. Understanding dawned on Debbie, and with relief she asked, You want me to take the bones out of here? He nodded enthusiastically, and for the first time a smile spread across his face. Debbie smiled back and then stooped to grab the sack. She then began picking up the bones. When she was done, she looked over at the boy and he put his hands together and bowed. He was saying thank you. Now what? She asked. But before he could react, Debbie heard something. It was the same thing the boy had heard the day he died. She looked at him questioningly, and the look of sheer terror on his face startled her. Suddenly, an orange glow began to travel towards them from somewhere in the darkness at the other end of the tunnel. 
The boy frantically motioned to Debbie, but she was entranced by the light. The trance was broken when she heard a boy's voice scream, Run! She turned, shocked that the word had came from the boy who before couldn't talk, and she realized that fear had brought him his voice, a fear that now she began to share. He turned and began to run, and she followed him. He was so fast it was hard to keep up, but they made it to the exit of the tunnel, and Debbie stumbled out into the sunlight. She didn't know what she had just seen, but knowing that she was keeping company with a ghost made anything possible. He was standing over her, motioning for her to follow. Debbie rose, but then stopped. Wait, there's something that I have to do. I have to find out what happened to those men who were forced to work here the ones who disappeared all those years ago. The boy's brow furrowed, but he nodded and turned to walk back towards the warehouse she had walked through earlier. After following him through several rooms, they ended their walk in a room with a huge furnace. Debbie's breath caught in her throat when she realized what it was. She had seen pictures of these before. There was a large metal door on the front with a lever used to lock it shut. She pulled it and had to work it open, for years of rust had corroded the metal. When the door finally swung open, she turned on her flashlight and aimed its beam inside. This is exactly what she had expected. The furnace floor was covered in ash and bones. She pulled out her phone and took several pictures before shutting the door and turning to the boy. Was that what was in the tunnel? She asked him. If it was, those are some angry spirits, and I don't blame them. Someone needs to tell the world their story. The boy hung his head. Debbie found herself wishing she could give him a hug. Now, she continued, what am I supposed to do with this? She held up the bag and the boy looked at it, then turned and began to walk again. Debbie followed him through the hallways and several other buildings before coming to one that was especially tall. He walked through the door and began to climb the stairs. They made it to the top. She counted nine stories. The boy continued to walk until they reached a door. He then walked straight through it. That must be a nice talent to have. Debbie mumbled as she reached for the doorknob, opened the door, and went inside. She found him standing before a small closet. He was staring down at the floor. When she approached, he pointed at a small box. Debbie knelt down beside him and took the box from the closet that she could now see had once been a pantry. She held the box in her lap and opened it. Inside were pictures. As she looked through them, she saw a happy family. A mother, father, a young boy, and a little girl. He was the boy in the picture. That was clear. Debbie began flipping the pictures over until she found one with names written on the back. Takeshi, is that your name? She asked. And this is your family. The boy, Takeshi, smiled and nodded. 
Debbie sat in thought for a moment, then spoke. I think I know what you need me to do. You want me to return your remains to your family. Takeshi looked at her, and she could have sworn there were tears in his eyes. He nodded and bowed one last time. He then looked up at Debbie, gave her a final large smile, and faded away. It was as if he had never been there. But Debbie had proof. She had lots of proof. Thank you for joining us to explore Battleship Island. Tune in next week as we discuss another terrific location. I'm Carmen Carrion. Remember, you can send me suggestions and stories of haunted places to my email, carmencarrion at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Carmen Carrion. Be sure to check out EerieCast.com for more terrifying podcasts. Until next time, stay safe out there until I see you at our next destination. <laughs>